Hello, stranger. Do you like to read? Read? What's happening? Am I dead? I bet you like zombie books. I like food. Do you have food? You don't need food at dividedbyzerobooks.com. It's full of nutrient-rich science fiction. Ugh, I'm stuck in an ad, aren't I? Once I stop talking, reality will collapse until someone plays this ad again. This isn't the first time we've had this discussion, and it won't be the last. Hello, stranger. Do you like to read? Hey, this is Derwin Lester from the Derwin Lester Show. And with me today is a friend from a long, long ago, far away land called College named Nick Oaks. Hey, Nick, how you doing? Hey, Derwin, how you doing? It's always good to be here with you. You had a story for me before we hit record uh, about something I told you in college a long time ago. When which you had told me, I want to say it was probably the spring or summer or fall semester of 2016. I know, I know the class. I don't remember exactly the semester, but you, we, we were talking about me. Basically, it was one of those. Hey, let's talk about you, kid. You know, the the young um, whippersnapper, basically. And um, it was right after we talked about how I was autistic on yeah. the autism spectrum, and you said, okay, that kind of accounts for a lot of the little quirks that you had noticed about yours truly and you asked me how old I was and I said oh I'll be I'm 22 I'll be 23 in December you said uh, and I think in I can't I wish I I wish to God I could remember the exact quote but it was something to the effect of you're you've got a little ways to go now but when you get to be about 28 29 maybe 30 you'll have women all over you (laughs) And, and I remember meeting you and thinking, oh, this guy in about a decade is going to be fucking awesome, right? Like all young men, like myself, like everyone else, uh, he's got some uh, bacon to do still, right? And that's fine. That's everybody, you know? And, and and I know for me, I learned all my life lessons by putting my face on the lit burner and going, oh, the stove's hot, you know, and just holding it. I hold my face there just to be sure. But looking more at you, I remember that kid from 2016 who was 22, who was like, man, I, I have a hard time meeting girls and I'm, I'm autistic and I don't know how to talk to people or whatever. You're going to school at John Hopkins and you intern at freaking NASA. <laughs> like, oh, all oh, that makes me so happy, Nick. You have no idea. And today's episode, what I'd love to get more into involved in, is I'd love to learn, because last episode, you were about to go to, uh, uh, what, D.C.? To go to the NASA place to get your ID badge and everything. And so I'd love to hear that story. Let's start off there. What was it like going to the NASA headquarters in D.C. and getting your badge and seeing everything in person um well first of all just to just for the sake of clarity i did go to headquarters i went to goddard which is one of the which is actually the center where i work i got lucky in that when i showed up in maryland you know i was actually staying with my aunt and uncle who live in damascus maryland which is a little bit north and west of the DMV, basically, as they call it. Right. Yep, I just picked up my badge. All I had to do was walk in, they handed it to me. Okay. They didn't have to, like, do the 
do the like stuff again. They just handed me like, here it is. Okay. It, it was so, basically pre-made. Yeah. So after Goddard, where did you go? So after Goddard, I drove back to my aunt and uncle's and I kind of intended on, on getting out of there before the horrible rush hour. Yeah. Um, and it's funny, my GPS must have anticipated my wishes because it took me around a bunch of back roads in Maryland. So mm-hmm. I saw some really, I got this, it was like a real scenic route, and I got to avoid the highways, the horrible um, DC rush hour traffic. There and you go. My, then my uh, aunt and uncle, my cousin, and I went to one of their favorite restaurants in, Dam- in the Damascus area for dinner, and I got to eat, like, you know, um, I got to eat like a seafood platter and a, and crab soup. Um, and then we went for like frozen custard afterwards or something, or like no, soft serve, soft serve. It's like a soft yeah. serve. You know, one of those local fixture ice cream places, you know, that every small town seems to have. Sure. And uh, then we just went home and everyone kind of chilled out and then I went to bed. And then the next day I got up and went with, with my aunt and cousin again, because my uncle had to work. Um, and went with them and uh, went and did breakfast. And I had to get on a plane by, you know, early afternoon or mid-afternoon. So I had to go, had to make my way to Dulles so I could turn in the car and get processed through security and all that stuff. So they had you fly all the way out to D.C. just to get a badge? Um, I kind of decided I wanted to. It's kind right. of a weird thing. because No, no, that's not a weird thing. <laughs> I would make the same call. If, if I had the option, if they're like, hey, we need you to fly out to the fucking White House and then get a pack of cigarettes from Joe Biden or whatever, then, um, yeah, I would, 100%. I, I, you, when do you get the chance to go to D.C. again? Yeah. Like, Exactly. Well, I'm hoping I can go back someday and actually do all of the, like, cool museum stuff. I would have tried, I would have probably tried to stay longer or something, like the Air and Space Museum had been open. How is the airline system these days? Like, because we went. Actually, was very convenient for me. Really? And I say, and I say for me because literally sitting at the terminal at at Indianapolis Airport, waiting to fly to Dallas. So this this would have been like you know Monday afternoon, early evening, whatever. The the plane like directly across the 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 chute directly across from mine, the gate directly across from mine. Uh, there were people coming out when I was sitting down. They had been deplaned twice already, and their flight ended up getting canceled because they were trying to get to like New Jersey or somewhere, and there was bad storms like, yeah. hovering there. So they, they were they kind of got screwed over. But for me, it was smooth sailing. I never dealt with any turbulence at all. Even I never dealt with any storms. I just basically went to the airport, sat on my butt, and waited for like two hours at the longest. You know, that's not pretty much good. To do, but um okay so if i understand correctly your position at nasa is you are an intern at a program that teaches people how to write about science right yep. how is that going it's well first of all it's going well i want to iterate that right off the bat it's going really well it's fantastic enjoyable um the little anecdote for you to sort of sort of illustrate my point Last Monday, so a week ago today, I had, it was really like the first meeting that I went to for the summer, or not, not the fall internship rather, and um, 
they and they wanted because they wanted to introduce me. Like my the mentors wanted to have three of the, the three returning interns um, introduce themselves and say, "Hey, this is who I am." Maybe you know present some pictures or slides or whatever. Just to sort of reintroduce ourselves to all of the other people who are at. Um, the Office of Communications because it was the it was the Monday meeting which is you know whatever my group is and um, we uh, we did that and when I was done I felt really good and it was like a kind it was like it was that kind of feeling that you only get when you're you know, I've discussed it with like my with my creative writing friends with my mom with a couple other people it's 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 that feeling you get when you're feeling actualized by your work. Like, you know, like when you like when you're starting to climb Maslow's pyramid, you know, um, because you know I was actually doing. Th- I was. I, I felt like you know I'm success doing success. It felt like it felt like success. It felt like I was doing meaningful work. Like I was being like I like I was valued and valuable, and um, it felt like it, it was kind of like a euphoria, you know, because you. I felt like you know, this is where I'm. This is where I'm supposed to be doing. This is you know where I'm happy doing. You I found your place. Is that? You found your place. Yes, I think so. And I, damn, I'm so fucking proud of you, man. You <laughs> did so good. I remember you talking about applying at NASA years ago, and I'm like, NASA? We're in Indiana. What is he talking about? And you did it. You 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 saw what you wanted, and you achieved it. I'm, I can't be proud of you. You fucking you nailed it. Um. Talk to me about getting your first article published. Okay, so the first article, and I'll try and give you a brief rundown of what that was, just for the sake of your for your, of your listeners, if nothing else. The first article, it's uh, the topic was the top five discoveries of the sample analysis at Mars or SAM instrument suite aboard the Curiosity rover in the ten years that it's been on Mars. Obviously, Curiosity, for those who don't know, just basically turned ten in August. Um, I think it was like the first week of August. Uh, it was, you know, Ten years ago, this this you know that month, it landed on Mars and began doing science, and it's been there ever since. Um, and it's done lots of really cool things. It's found out a lot of really cool things, and it's still kicking. Um, so I was tasked with um, with interviewing some scientists who work on the with the sample analysis at Mars instrument suite and discussing you know, what are some of the things that you think are most important and most exciting that it has discovered in the time that it's been there. And they, they gave me, they, they boiled down to a list of five and we sort of workshopped it. And I ended up writing an article describing these things. And um, that got published, I want to say August 4th of this year. So it's 2022. That's my first article at NASA. And it's one of those things where, you know, you, you could go at least for a day there or so before it got buried under, under newer news items. You could go on the NASA, like the NASA Goddard webpage, and it would be right there on the sidebar. Hey, you know, top five discoveries of the SAM instrument suite. And then I That's think the, next, the very next week they published my second, which was about um, the concept of planetary photobombing, which is also very interesting and sort of something you would never think of if you weren't like, you know, immersed in telescopy um give me the give me the give me the dumb version sure uh, you know screw the rundown it's a uh, photo planetary photobombing is basically it's basically what it sounds like you know we, i even put that in the article I'm just thinking, you know, if you go to say the 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 analogy i gave in the article is say you go to a um an amusement park and you want to take a picture with your family like at the mickey statue or something well let's say johnny depp walks behind you 
and it walks through the background of your photo. That's no longer going to be a photo of you or your family. It's going to be a photo of you and your family with Johnny Depp in the background. <laughs> it's pretty much what happens in photo bombing and astronomy. And what what happens actually is it's a, it's a vagary of the way optics work at distance. Because when you look at, say, a planet like, um, again, I'll just basically tear straight from the article. The, the scientist that I interviewed, his paper that we were covering, he actually used our solar system, you know, Earth and Mars and Venus and all that, as an, analog, as an, as an analog. And um, he showed that if you were to look at us using the sort of telescope that we might be putting up in the next 10, 15 years, that's been benchmarked by the recent Ast- Astronomical Decadal Survey, um, and you were looking at our, at, our solar, at our solar system from about 30 light years away, which is about the distance we anticipate to be looking at possible other Earth-like planets in our, from our actual you know, real-world solar system. Um, there's a possibility that planets could photobomb each other. And what that means is that, say you were to look at Earth. Well, if Venus and Earth... So, but basically, yeah, it's like imagine Venus, uh, imagine Earth is in the front and Venus is a little is behind because you're looking at them from, from away. So Venus is closer to the sun, Earth is further from the sun, but they seem to be near to each other from your perspective. It's kind of like um, if you were to look at um, a, a, a port from, from high, if you were to look at a port from high above, you might see two ships that are actually in, rea- they're in reality hundreds of yards away from each other. But if you look at those two ships from the ground, they might appear to be right next to each other from your perspective because it's just the way the angle. Looking up, you say, oh, look, that's Mars. But then Jupiter's right there. And so, like, mm-hmm. Jupiter's bigger than Mars. Mars yeah. looks right next to Jupiter, however they're however far away they are. The, the thing is, there's a little bit more to it than that. And the problem is, is not just perspectives. It's how the optics actually resolution on the perspective, on the, on the device works. Yeah. Because when you, look at it, when you look at a planet like Earth, like Mars, or like Venus... Um, you're looking at even from the even even if we're looking at the nearest neighboring star system, Proxima Centauri, Alpha Centauri, whatever, that is so far away that the planet, if as resolved through a telescope, would be smaller than a pixel next to the star. So you, it resolves into something called what's called something something called a point spread function, which is it's basically an, it's an exp, it's like an uh, it's it's just sort of taking a single pixel and, and blowing it up into a, a, a spread of light that shows what's in that pixel. It's kind of a loose way to describe it. Um, I'm probably butchering that myself because I I can never fully grasp the concept of the point spread function without one of the scientists explaining it to me. The problem with that though is that if you're looking at two planet if you're if you're looking at a planet that's near enough another planet when you look at them in the point spread function they might blend together. So it's not just that they appear near each other; it's that they might actually overlap. And that the problem with that is because you're, when you're looking through a telescope, you're not just looking at light; you're looking at things like spectroscopy and the other things that show you what that light is is reflecting off of, what the object it's reflecting off of is, is made of. You might mistake one planet for another planet because the third, because the second planet is too near it. The, like the, the big analogy in the paper and the big analogy we used in the article is. Um, that if you were to look at Earth and Venus was really close to it, you might assume that Earth was Venus-like because some of the light from Venus blended into the light from Earth. And that's a bad thing because if you're looking for Earth 2.0s or Earth's 2.0 and you look and you look at it and you look at a planet and say, oh, that's just like Venus. You're not going to consider that planet anymore because you're going to think it's dead and uninhabitable because Venus is dead and uninhabitable as far as we know. Um, so it, 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 can, it can spoil... Uh, detection of interesting planets because you're getting your basically you're de- getting your data contaminated. It's like uh, 
it's like people take it's like if you were if you were a chemist and you were running samples in your test tubes and something something spilled into your test tubes like you know there's someone's bleach in your test tubes and it ruined all those samples that's it's kind of the same thing not maybe not the same level of ruination but it's it can, it can spoil results real quick it sounds like you've got a good grasp on the science um and this must be good practice for your actual real job huh? oh, yeah yeah okay well i'll have you mm-hmm. on a, you can educate this dumb monkey as often as you like um what was it like the first time you interviewed a scientist you know, it's funny. It's all, it was, it's, and in many ways, it was just a lot like having one of our chats because, mm. you know, you, you know, people like pe- people like me, even you know, before I got to NASA, like to like probably have this sort of rose-colored picture of like the NASA scientist, someone who like walks on water and is like yeah. you know, doing three-dimensional chess with Spock, while they're also you know doing equations on cal- calculus equations about the diffraction of light from Venus or something. It's not necessarily like that. They, they they are really intelligent, really well educated, but they're also just people. When right. I when I first interviewed um, the gentleman for the protobombing article, you know, he was just in a t-shirt, just in his house. You know, he was he's like, hey, well, how you doing, buddy? Um, I'm just gonna, what, what are we gonna talk about today? And I just basically asked him some questions that I'd written down to sort of prime my own knowledge of the subject, so that I could then have quotes to pull from quotes to pull from him for the text. And information so that I could understand better for my first draft. So, in any ways, it's not all. It's 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 actually very casual. But you also got to remember that, yeah, you're talking to someone who's way more educated in this subject than you are. That's the point, though. Is you're, you're is it someone like me who's? Um, you know, I know you like to call yourself a dumb monkey, but the point of having someone like me in the middle as a middleman is you can take someone like one of these scientists who's obviously studied for possibly decades in this field. And you can sort of water their knowledge down and distill it, or maybe not so the down, dumb monkeys can drink the water of knowledge. Yes, yeah, you're, you're basically you're, you're just you're, it's almost like you're desalinating. Yeah, <laughs> like all of the extra jargon and technical stuff that the lay person doesn't have. You know, exactly. You call yourself a dumb monkey. We call them lay people. You know, well, I, it's, yes. you know, that, that, that's polite of you. Um, I, I, I have this theory this idea that the path to wisdom is to first understand just how truly ignorant of a dumb monkey you really are right and operate with that baseline assumption of like oh i'm probably an idiot and maybe on my best day i might know one thing maybe right and i should probably double check that and you know, and I know lots of stuff. I know I'm a smart guy and all that, but kind of trying to operate from that level keeps me humble. You know, it helps me to be open to other people, uh, people from different backgrounds, experiences, whatever. Uh, if you assume that you don't know anything, right? Like when the vaccine came out for COVID, and to me, mRNA vaccine is pretty much magic. So I figured, oh, a wizard says if you take the magic potion into your arm, it keeps the blood demons away, <laughs> right? So, so maybe you should thank God there's a wizard who had one. You know, I understand who I am and keep things that fucking simple. 
And well, I mean, and we've also got to remember to sort of extend upon your wizard analogy, you know, looking at Lord of the Rings, yeah. you know, when Gandalf is trying to save King Theoden from Sauron, you know, King Theoden has Dream of Wormtongue whispering in his ear. So a lot of these people who don't want the magic blood potion have some Dream of Wormtongue whispering in their ear telling them, hey, this is just going to, this, this is going to give you out autism or something. And it's going to get, it's going to make you sick. So, I mean, so I know a lot of people that are not on the spectrum and you are achieving far and away more than they ever did. And so I see these people, they're like, oh, I don't want to go autism. You know what? I know a guy with autism. You might benefit from it, right? <laughs> like it might help you. I don't know, but you know, I'll, I'll say this: I've definitely thought about that, and the, the notion that some people think getting autism is worse than dying of the measles or dying of smallpox or something—it's <laughs> a little insulting. Yeah, we'll say that. I I always wondered about that, and I think we've been friends long enough that I could ask about that on a podcast. Yeah. You know, if the kid has autism, well, then just learn about autism and raise your fucking kid. Like that just means you got to be careful around loud noises or something. Like I don't know, yep. but pretty much. And of course, it all comes from pure nonsense because if you look at the actual, and I hope not to derail your, your podcast too much. Uh, we're already off the rails. That's yeah. fine. <laughs> Fair enough. You look at the actual history of the whole vaccine caused autism um, rumor. It basically all traces back to one study that was conducted by some quack scientist that has since been thoroughly debunked and decredited, discredited. And yet all these friggin', you know, soccer mom scholars who want to say, oh, well, this thing and this thing says it's true. That's all they're really talking about. They're going off this one little bit of discarded science that's basically just being, being propped up by nothing. Yeah. And I remember my dad telling these stories about how when he was a little boy and they had uh, lines of people outside the courthouse for forced vaccinations, right? Which, yeah, let's get rid of measles. Let's get rid of smallpox. Let's get rid of COVID. You know, that would have that been nice. But I have this theory, and I could be totally wrong. Um, I have this idea, and it's not even a theory. Theories imply I tested something. This is just my own idle fucking ramblings. And that people don't, especially in the last two years, people have felt such a lack of control in their lives because there has been a worldwide compounding worldwide (laughs) catastrophes, right? Crises, um, you know, wars, you know. And like, yes, we've always been a species that has been at war, but when the Europeans go, the Europeans are genocidal monsters. And when they go to war, everybody dies, right? So when, you know, yes, uh, any war is bad, but European war, really bad. And it's like, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, but you the last time, the last time, major European countries had interstate wars. Um, I mean, technically, it was the Bosnian War, but those weren't at the risk of being flippant. Those weren't really major countries. But the last time, two like major neighboring European countries had uh, a, a major interstate war was World War Two. Yeah, yeah, they plunged the planet in death and fire and blood. Uh, 
I run with a lot of veterans in the veteran community and people say, oh, the Europeans aren't pulling their own weight. Good. Let them fucking pontificate over a sandwich in a salad about uh, 13th century paintings or whatever, right? Because if they get all a fighting, then we got to deal with them, you know? <laughs> but anyway, let's take this back to your NASA experience. And sure. as a layman, I need you to uh, I, I, uh, run me through two topics that I don't quite understand, or I guess I kind of do, but also it's the internet, so who the fuck knows? So one, uh, are aliens a thing? Like, well, I think the official NASA speak would be for me to say I don't, I'm not qualified to answer that. And I'm not just saying that as a joke, I'm also saying that as, as, as serious, because any NASA person that I, at least that I know, who, who doesn't, you know, would probably say the same. You know, they're going to they're tell you, well, we don't have enough evidence of that. Anyone who knows something that they're not telling, um, they're not going to tell me anyway, because I'm just an intern. <laughs> you know? They'll they just, tell the janitor before yeah. they tell you. Basically, it, the, the answer to the old question of, you know, how can they keep, how would they, how would they keep that secret when there's so many people you have to convince to keep it a secret? It's called plausible deniability. Don't yeah. tell everyone. Yeah. Uh, if, you, if you tell 10 people at the top of the chain, at the top of the food chain, that there's aliens and we're keeping them secret, that's a secret you could keep. If you tell, if you tell every, you know, inter, if you tell every Tom, Dick and Harry in a multi-thousand employee in, agency that there's aliens, that secret's going to get leaked somewhere. Just You're like have to end. kill a lot of interns. That secret's going to get leaked faster than the friggin' Grand Theft Auto 6. So, you know. Um, what was that? What'd you say? Grand Theft Auto 6, you didn't hear about that being leaked? Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, 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 for sure. I mean, someone's going someone's to at least put like an, an anonymous TikTok story out there or something. <laughs> but I mean, that's the thing. At the same time, no one would believe it because you hear so, so much of that stuff from cranks that it's it's almost an, the, the, the conspiracy almost insulates itself. But I'm not going to go down that road because I don't, you know, I, I don't have enough information. But personally, I think I... And I think many NASA people would agree with me on at least this far. Personally, I do think there's something out there. I don't know how far. I don't know what in, in what form. I would not be surprised if there's at least microbes living somewhere else in the solar system. There's too many. It's just it just boggles. You know, it's like the line from Contact, you know, by Carl Sagan and the movie, which they made based on the book. You know, the universe is such a huge place with such a diversity of places to live that if it was only just humans. That almost seems too improbable to be believed, you know. It's like, you know, if if the universe, if if we go back a couple hundred years to, and, and to the point where people thought that the, the universe was made just for humans, and it was a couple, you know, maybe a couple, a few, a few planets orbiting the, the Earth with the sun uh, orbiting the Earth, and all the stars were just like affixed in the firm, a firmament, then you can sort of get away with that belief. But, you know, as, as people like Carl Sagan have said, you know, as our knowledge is, as our um, scope of knowledge has increased, as that the quality of that knowledge has increased, we basically had to demote our own anthropocentrism over and over again because we realized, well, the universe isn't centered on the Earth. It's not just this solar system. It's not just this galaxy. It, may not, it might not even be just this universe. There's too much diversity out there for it to make sense that there's only one planet with life and that's the thing is we might not ever find a planet with diverse life you know the most we may ever find at least in 
any reasonable time span could be microbes under a rock on Mars or in the lake of Titan or in the oceans beneath the ice of Europa. Um, but who knows? So what you're saying is, yes, there's aliens and men in black is real. Cool. Second question. Um, so there is, I read a thing where NASA's like, yeah, so we're just going to like launch a satellite at an asteroid and then just kind of see what happens. And I'm yep. like, I know like four movies where the asteroid kills us all. So, <laughs> well, I want to, I want to, I want to jump in before you start, before the public starts panicking and just say that based on what I've heard, cause you know, I've actually, I've watched scientists like not even from NASA. Like there's a, there's like a British scientist um, who has a channel on YouTube who talks about this stuff all the time. Does does a video every week where she talks about, you know, the latest developments in science and, and space science. That is, of course, she's an astrophysicist. Um, and she did a video on this mission, the DART mission. And, she, she, one of the first things she made clear was that this isn't, this is not an asteroid that is, in, is at risk of hitting the Earth. That's one of the reasons we target it. Because another, you know, going back to my friend Carl Sagan, you know, everybody's friend Carl Sagan, um, the thing about messing with the orbital dynamics of asteroids is, a, is the law of unintended consequences. You know, you, you, may, you may fix one problem and cause another. You know, you move an asteroid from one orbit that could hit the Earth into another orbit that could hit the Earth 60 years later or six years earlier. You never really know until you <laughs> try it. But the reason we're trying with this asteroid is because it's far enough away that we can see if it works. And it's actually really cool what, what the mission entails because it's not just any asteroid. It's actually a moon of an asteroid. Oh. It's, a, it's, an, it's an asteroid... I think it's like Dimorphos and Didymus, and I can't remember which one's the moon, which one's the main asteroid. But basically what it is, is there's, there's, a, there's a bigger asteroid that's orbiting the sun, and there's a little or a much smaller asteroid that orbits the bigger asteroid. And the, the spacecraft, DART, is going to hit the smaller asteroid, and there's going to be a camera probe ejected that flies past as this is happening, and is going to look and see if the smaller asteroid's orbit around the bigger asteroid is affected. Because that will show us, hey, you know, basically it's one of those things where you, you, you take the data that provides and you take some data from a follow-up probe that I think the European Space Agency is sending maybe like next year or something. And it's going to get out there obviously probably 2024. You take that data and you then extrapolate and say, okay, first of all, does this work at all? Can we redirect and change the orbits of, of or space rocks by hitting them with things like like a swatting with a, with a fly swatter basically and second of all is the, if that if it is possible is there a size limit on the object we can do it with because that obviously is important too if you can only do it on objects smaller than say a kilometer it doesn't really matter if there's one that's 60 kilometers coming at you because that you might just be screwed you might just have to say okay kids we had a good run bye-bye we can't you know. call bruce willis he's retired yeah <laughs> He's a little. He's also. Um, he, yeah, he's pretty much out of. He's, he's pretty much out of the question. Yeah, he's old now. Yeah. Um, okay, so that's kind of amazing, actually, to where they're that they're thinking so far ahead. Like maybe because it's it, it's probably inevitable, and, and I know you can't speak on inevitabilities, but I would guess that it's the chances are high that at some point like a civilization ending rock will come our way right that's it's a it's a non-zero chance and if it's a non-zero chance we should have a response to it 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, just, just, just to elaborate on that a little bit, there's a famous line. I think it's missing. I think the story goes that it's misattributed to Larry Niven by uh, Richard Heinlein or Robert Heinlein. I'm not sure. But basically this line goes, the dinosaurs went extinct because they didn't have a space program. And if we go extinct for the same reason, it'll serve us right. Yeah. And basically what that's saying is the sort of, you know, the sort of sentiment that I think this mission is going after, which is that, which is what you just said. You know, if there's a non-zero chance, we do, we owe it to ourselves to have some response available. And I think that the thing that's worth pointing out is that we, it's, it's definitely much more than a non-zero chance. You know, we know just from studying Earth's history that these, these impacts have happened in the past and they've happened with such and such irregularity. Like, you know, impacts of a certain size happen every like 100,000 years. Impacts of the next bigger size happen every uh, 10 million years. And impacts of the next bigger size happen every billion years or, or whatever the case may be. So, you know, obviously the last time one of these hit that could end, you know, 70, 60 or 70% of life, last time an impact happened that could cause mass extinction was 66 million years ago, at the end of the Cretaceous period, which, which you know, everybody knows about because that's what killed the dinosaurs. Um, and, you know, and of course, obviously there's some, some newer science at the time since demonstrate that dinosaurs might have had other things going against them too, but that friggin' you know, Mount Everest-sized comet or, or asteroid that hit the Yucatan Peninsula probably had something to do with it, based it on, on all of our based on all of our studies. And um, it doesn't and have to be, you know, an asteroid the size of Texas. Yeah. You know, and it doesn't have to be this great thing where, like, in the movie, the asteroid hits and then just yeah, that's flat. The it doesn't have to be don't look up. It yeah. could just be something that blocks out the sun for five years, right? That's enough. That 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 puts us all back five hundred years, real quick. Because yeah, people, at the risk of, of you know fanning panic, which I'm not trying to do. I'm not saying. Oh, this, my audience isn't really. big enough for that. Don't worry. <laughs> okay. Well, um, you know, you look at you look at the. I think it was the Krakatoa eruption, like in the 1880s. Yeah. You know that that made one cold year. And that cold year was, was was horrible all by itself. So if you have an, an asteroid on the size of the dinosaur impact of the, you know, the, I think I can't, I can't remember if it's called if it's still called the KT boundary impact or whatever, it's got it's got some different name I think. But if you have an impact on on that scale, it can block it can you know block out the sun for a few months or a few years. It can cause global heating after the after the, the soot falls and the, the greenhouse gases rise. Because that's the, that's something that a lot of people don't actually realize is that it's not just global cooling you're looking at; it's also global warming, because all of the carbon dioxide and other things that get in the atmosphere from the fires that are caused by the impact that causes global warming. So, you know, imagine what we have now, but ten times worse. Oh, good. <laughs> so, yeah. So a nightmare where we're it's not terrible enough that we die right away. Yeah, basically. And you know, I'm not going to be pes- I'm not pessimistic enough to say that some portion of the human race wouldn't pull through. We're I think we're too tenacious for that. But the the, the point that the point that's laboring to make itself is that we we again that we owe it to ourselves to try and do something. Exactly. Um, and of course, there's different things that we have to look into because one of the things, one of the uncertainties that the astrophysicist I mentioned um, actually talks about in her video is that you know if you look if, whether you're looking at an asteroid or a comet can really change your your period of warning because you know asteroids orbit the sun so they're they're generally on longer more circular orbits that we can predict further in advance comets on the other hand 
they have very long elliptical orbits, basically like um, shaped like more like a minnow than like an egg, you know. Um, so what happens is they'll uh, they'll they'll dive in from you know possibly thousands of astronomical units, so you know possibly billions of miles away or kilometers away, which you know whichever you prefer. Um, and they come and they come in, they zoom around the sun, they go back out. And because they have these really long orbits, they're only in our neighborhood maybe once every thousand years, a couple thousand years. The problem with that is we can't exactly pr- predict when they're going to come. You know, that's why you hear the, that's where you see these stories every so often. Hey, this cool new comet's going to be flying near the sun soon. Why don't you go out inside at night and look at it? And again, you, you raise a good point. It doesn't necessarily have to be a civilization or life-ending thing for it to be bad. You know, something, you know, you look at that asteroid, that that meteoroid or whatever that broke up in the atmosphere over Chelyabinsk uh, back in 2014 and 13, I want to say. Um, that would have caused some serious devastation if it had blown up closer to the ground. I mean, it blew out wood, thousands of windows all over that city, and that's just and that was blowing up, you know, a couple thousand feet into the atmosphere. That explosion was like several dozen megatons all by itself. You know, you have something like that actually airburst in the city. You know, if you ever heard of the, uh, the um, what was it called? The, uh, t- the, the Tunguska event. If you have something like that happen in the city, which was obviously was big enough. Would that um, be like if a dirty bomb got blown up and, and uh, you know, 100 feet in the air? Yeah. It's basically, it's basically like a nuke without the radiation. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah. So you could you could basically destroy you could destroy a city and cause a global panic um, without any of the radiation. So yeah, at least there's that. So I think we'll end there. So aliens are real, as per NASA intern Nick Oaks, and we're all going to die. For the Derwin Lester Show, this is Derwin signing off. Sweet.